DiscerningHearts.com presents Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. Dr. Lillis is an associate professor and the academic dean of St. John's Seminary in Camarillo, California, as well as the academic advisor for the Juan Diego House of Priestly Formation for the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. Through the years, clergy, seminarians, religious, and lay faithful have benefited from his lectures and retreat conferences on the Carmelite Doctors of the Church and the writings of St. Elizabeth of the Trinity. He's the author of Hidden Mountain's Secret Garden, A Theological Contemplation of Prayer, as well as numerous other books focused on the spiritual life. In this series of conversations with Dr. Lillis, we discuss the letters of St. Elizabeth of the Trinity. Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Welcome, Anthony. It is so good to be with you, Chris. Um, thank you for having me and for doing this series. I can't get enough of St. Elizabeth of the Trinity. Why do you suppose that is? What is it about her that is touching the hearts of so many people? Well, I think she's a special prophet for our time. You know, we live at a time where people are frenzied. It's not clear to them where or how to root their hearts so that they can get through life. And she offers us uh, heaven by faith. She offers us a grounding in the Holy Trinity. And when that gets proposed and you hear it, you go, ah, it's kind of like something that you already knew. You know, it's it's not like something that came out of left field that you didn't expect. But, it, but you needed to hear it. Uh, you needed to hear it re-proposed. And that's her spiritual mission, to re-propose that prayer is real, that the Trinity is real that we can root our, root our lives on this love of God. And when we do, it makes all the difference. Well, in this wonderful opportunity to reflect on her letters, we see her sharing that, that great love with so many of her friends, um, not just friends who are peers, but those who are older than she as well, don't we? Yeah, well, in this particular letter that we're going to be looking at, she is writing an an old priest, a family friend. I can't remember if he's the priest who baptized her. He knew her father and her grandfather, and his name is Father Angles. Uh, She will write his sister, too, so they're family friends. And so when she's a little girl, she was born in an army camp, and, and, and Father Angles was involved with them even at that stage of her life. And so when she moved to Dijon, he kept an eye on her. He was the first one that Elizabeth confided her vocation to. She was a a little girl, and she kind of did this kind of gymnastic move where that kind of surprised this priest, kind of, you know, little older guy. And she kind of did, as a little girl, she did this, this move so that all at once she could whisper in her ear and she said, I am going to be a religious father. I'm going to be a religious. He remembered that so that when she got older and decided she wanted to enter Carmel, he told her, he goes, do you remember when you, <laughs> when you did that little gymnastic move so that you could whisper in my ear? That's the grace of God unfolding in your life now. So he has been writing her, encouraging her while she's in. And up until this stage, Right now, we're kind of a, a turning point has happened. Up until she made her profession, 
she had been going through some kind of very, very intense dark night. After she made her religious profession, uh, not very much before he wrote this letter, that darkness kind of breaks and there's kind of a, a new springtime in her life that begins to unfold. And so in this period of her life is when she writes, a few months from now, she'll write her first major work, uh, Oh My God, Trinity, Whom I Adore, that a prayer that totally transformed so many lives it is written after she comes out of this dark night. Now, a curious part about this dark night that she went through, some of the supports that she had really relied on until this time of her life were taken away, including Father Angles. Father Angel was uh, had, we discover in this letter, he had something going on with his eyes that had made him sick. In writing, she received a letter from his sister. Uh, his sister came and visited her. He had written a letter. She's writing this letter in response. And so kind of when things got darkest, some of the people that she was relying on the most, God took away from her. And still, that didn't what God wanted to do. God was going to accomplish what he was going to accomplish. Uh, you know, and Elizabeth would realize the purification that needed to be done and she would get the encouragement she needed, but not in the way she expected. But now is a time of reestablishing contact. Uh, contact, And in reestablishing contact, she's kind of grateful for the role this priest has played in her life up till now. July 15th, 1903, Dijon Carmel. Monsieur Le Chanoine, my dear Mama, whom I saw last week, brought me your good letter, and I assure you that I can indeed sympathize with the sufferings your eyes are causing you, and I am praying fervently for you. I was wondering a little what had become of you, but you find your little Carmelite close to God, don't you? And that is where she finds you, too. Then, no more distance, no more separation, but already, as in heaven, the fusion of hearts and souls. How many things have happened since my last letter? I heard the church say, Veni sponsa Christi, Come, Bride of Christ. She consecrated me, and now all is consummated. Rather, everything is beginning, for profession is only a dawn, and each day my life as a bride seems to me more beautiful, more luminous, more enveloped in peace and love. During the night that preceded the great day, while I was in choir awaiting the bridegroom, I understood that my heaven was beginning on earth. Heaven in faith, with suffering and immolation for him whom I love. I so wish to love him, to love him as my seraphic mother did, even to dying of it. We sing, O Caritas Victima, on her feast day, and that is my whole ambition, to be the prey of love. I think that in Carmel, 
It is so simple to live by love. From morning to evening, the rule is there to express the will of God moment by moment. If you knew how I love this rule, which is the way he wants me to become holy, I do not know if I will have the happiness of giving my bridegroom the witness of my blood by martyrdom, but at least, if I fully live my Carmelite life, I have the consolation of wearing myself out for him, for him alone. Then what difference does the work he wills for me make? Since he is always with me, prayer, the heart-to-heart, must never end. I feel him so alive in my soul. I have only to recollect myself to find him within me, and that is my whole happiness. He has placed in my heart a thirst for the infinite and such a great need for love that he alone can satisfy it. I go to him like a little child to its mother so he may fill, invade everything and then take me and carry me away in his arms. I think we must be so simple with God. I am longing to send you my good mama. You will see how God is working in this beloved soul. Sometimes I cry for happiness and gratitude. It is so good to be devoted to your mother, to feel that she too is completely his, to be able to tell her about your soul and to be completely understood. You really are the great attraction of the trip, I assure you. I love to remember those vacations at Saint-Hilaire, then at Carcassonne and La Bastide. They were the best ones I had. With what fatherly goodness you received the confidences I so love to make to you. I would be happy if one day they could be made once again through my dear grills. Won't you come to bless your little Carmelite and, quite close to her, thank him who has loved her exceedingly. For you see, my happiness can no longer be expressed. Listen to what is being sung in my soul, and all that is rising from the heart of the bride to the heart of the bridegroom for those whose little child she will always be. Send her your best blessing at Holy Mass. Bathe her in the blood of the bridegroom. It is the purity of the bride, and she is so thirsting for it. Adieu, Monsieur Le Chanoine. Affectionately and respectfully yours, Sister Elizabeth of the Trinity, RCI. This is a deep conviction of Elizabeth of the Trinity, and that is that when we draw close to Jesus, when we let ourselves spend time with him in prayer, and she's talking very specifically about silent prayer before the Lord, there is no deeper communion that we can have with each other than at that moment. 
So even if we're far from each other or separated from one another by cloistered walls, we are closest to one another when we've drawn into prayer because Jesus is the one who unites us in the unity that he establishes us and is more powerful than even physically being close. Chris, you probably know what it's like. You can be in the, the same room with somebody and they feel like they're a million miles away mm-hmm. because they're someplace spiritually and you're just not there with them. But when we draw close to prayer, all the things that separate us otherwise are being brought together by Christ. And we can always find a way of connecting with one another in deep prayer. Uh, this is something that for me, I kind of rely on. You know, I have adult children now and they're kind of going their own way, living their own lives. And that's a good thing. You know, I want them to thrive. But it's sometimes though, I, I get concerned about them and wonder, you know, what's going on exactly. And it, it, it's good to try to call them, but you don't always, get, you know, get through or whatever. And so this idea then that by go, going into deep prayer, by go, drawing close to the Lord, I'm actually closer to them even than when I call them. It's good to call them too. Mm-hmm. It's great to hear their voice. But my deeper communion with them is a communion by faith so that when I draw close to the heart of Jesus, Jesus, who is so close to them, is also allowing me to, in a certain way, enter into their hearts and help them carry their cross a little bit. And this is the beauty of our faith. Elizabeth is firmly convinced of this. In her letters, this is a theme that comes throughout her letters. Anthony, isn't that what it is to be, you know, that a member of the mystical body of Christ. I mean, just we call them the the sacraments of initiation. Of course, I'm speaking of baptism, confirmation, Eucharist. But being plunged into that sharing of the divine life from the reception of those sacraments, isn't that what it is to be in that mystical union? I think so. We talk about the communion of the saints. The reality is, when we've been baptized into Christ, we've lived no longer our own life. We've been constituted in Christ. He's the one who animates our souls. We, we live out of his subjectivity. And we do that the more we die to ourselves. So that's the beauty of the mystical body, is that we're all drawn together. We're all being animated by, by him together. And that allows us to exchange spiritual gifts with one another through through this Christological union, this uh, union that we have in the risen Christ, uh, in his sacred humanity. It, it, his sacred humanity is expressed, it lives in us. That sounds extremely theological, but it's, it's also, if you start thinking about it, it's profoundly um, consoling. We live in a world that's so alienated and fragmented, where people feel so alone. Uh, and our faith in Christ offers us a way of surmounting that loneliness, that isolation, that alienation. St. Paul in the book of Ephesians speaks about that enmity that separates us. has been overcome by Jesus. As we die to ourselves and live for Christ, we're bound to each other. And so new ways of loving one another, new ways of supporting each other are open to us that weren't open to us before by when we were limited by our, you know, our, just our human nature. Now we live 
in our humanity in the supernature of Christ in his union of humanity and divinity together it creates possibilities for communion with each other that we otherwise would wouldn't be able to enjoy that's that's the the immensity of our faith i feel bad for people who say you know i believe in a spirituality without religion and in jesus without the church well i don't know what it means to believe in jesus without the church without the church uh without his mystical body without that connection we have by each other because he has drawn us into himself and reconstituted us with his life without that what does our faith in christ give us exactly faith in christ is never a private individualized trip that just so that we can feel better about ourselves it's it's about building new relations with each other relations that wouldn't be possible without him but because he's overcome human sinfulness because he's raising up our nature, uh, glorifying it even right now, we have a possibility for communion with each other that we can't have. So the idea of a spirituality without religion, no, our Catholic religion, our Catholic faith opens up something that privatized spiritual trip can't give you. And the idea of having Jesus without the church, well, love with Jesus is never a private thing. It's always a love for a greater communion, a, a greater bond with each other, a bond so beautiful and so immense that it actually overcomes the alienation that has, sin has caused in the world. We'll return to Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis in just a moment. Did you know that you can obtain a free app which contains all your favorite Discerning Hearts programs. Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Archbishop George Lucas, Father Mauritius Fildi, and so many more, including episodes from Inside the Pages, can be obtained on the Discerning Hearts free app. This also includes all the novenas and devotionals and prayers, including the Holy Rosary and Stations of the Cross, the Chaplet of St. Michael, and the Seven Sorrows of Our Lady, all available on the Discerning Hearts free app. Visit the iTunes and Google Play app stores to obtain your free Discerning Hearts app today. A Prayer of St. Ignatius of Loyola Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my entire will, all that I have and call my own. You have given all to me. To you, Lord, I return it. Everything is yours. Do with it what you will. Give me only your love and your grace. That is enough for me. Amen. Hello, my name is Deacon Omar Gutierrez, and I want to ask you to support Discerning Hearts in a special way. We, Chris McGregor, the board, and I all know that not everyone listening can help financially. We know we have listeners from all parts of the world, and we have made a commitment since the beginning to make the truths shared through Discerning Hearts totally free. So while you may not be able to contribute financially, what you can do is certainly pray, but also give us positive reviews on whatever platform you use to listen to us. If it's iTunes, Android, Stitcher, Spotify, however it is that you get these podcasts, or if you're on YouTube and you like our videos, please give us a good rating and write a review. 
The more good ratings and reviews we get, the higher our profile, and the more listeners will discover us, listeners who may have the means to contribute in the future. Please consider rating us and writing a positive review today. We now return to Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. And Anthony, from what you've just said, it, it just it's almost imperative to us, I mean, even for our own well-being, to have those moments where you allow that communion to occur. I mean, more often than not, it's fostered by silence in prayer, but also to listen very deeply, as Elizabeth seems to do so wonderfully in just feeling the unity. And sometimes even for us, when you're in that prayer and someone comes to mind as Father Angles would come to mind to Elizabeth, she would pray for him. I mean, and in mm-hmm. a prompting. And that's important for us to do too, as in that prayer, we someone comes to mind or into our hearts and maybe we're being called to unite with them in prayer. What you're saying is true. And so... What is she doing when she prays? Her prayer is very Carmelite. And this is something that we can practice. Chris, is what is this prayer that allows us to draw so close to one another by drawing close to him? What exactly is it? And as a Carmelite, of course, she would advocate, you know, you, different techniques where you might use your imagination and see yourself in a scripture scene and hear the sounds and smell the smells and kind of baptize your imagination like that. Uh, she would have no problem with that. But that's not the, the primary kind of prayer that she's advocating, that, that kind of meditation on the scriptures that's more Ignatian is something that she's aware of, something she probably took advantage of herself, but it's not the chief kind of prayer. Kind, another kind of prayer that she also probably had recourse to, but she's not talking about here exactly she probably uh, and, and we know she did this the kind of prayer where you're reading the scriptures and and allowing your intellect to be kind of baptized in the wonders and splendors of our faith thinking about the truths of our faith and the holy scriptures and making connections and things we we know she did that because we see it so manifest in the writing she not only did it with the scriptures but she also did it with the writings of other saints and mystics John and Teresa of Avila, we're going to see in this letter, she did it with St. Therese of Lisieux as well, and many other saints. But here, though, when she talks about this, this kind of communion that she realizes in prayer, she's not even talking about that, as beautiful as that kind of prayer is. She's talking about yet an, another prayer. And in this other kind of prayer, uh, what we do, possible, not everybody can do this, but sometimes while you're using your imagination, sometimes while you're thinking thoughts, sometimes while you're praying the rosary, you feel drawn into the silence where you just want to be silent before the Lord. And you realize that there's a whole bunch of like desires and things in your heart that are not fitting for that silence. So you make a decision. I am not going to have, I'm not going to entertain all these other desires uh, that are moving. Sometimes the desires are are really wicked things like you're fomenting bitterness because of somebody said something or looked at you crosswise. And so you make the decision, I'm not going to think about that right now. It's not time for that. Sometimes it, the, the thoughts or the, the, the desires in your heart 
seem to be for relatively uh, good things. You know, um, uh, gee, I would really like to be doing some gardening right now, or uh, wouldn't these flowers look good in my garden? Or, you know, that bathroom needs to be remodeled. There's nothing wrong about thinking about your bathroom remodel or your gardening. Mm -hmm. But right now you're going to bracket and you're going to say, this isn't time for me to think about my desire to have remodeled house or a more beautiful garden or a better job. Right now it's time for me to think, time to for me to direct my the desires of my heart and to direct my mind to the presence of the Lord and just be aware of that presence. And if something distracts me from that presence, I'm going to have the scriptures with me. I'm going to have the writings of the good saint with me. I'm going to read those writings until I can direct myself back to that presence again. And the more aware I am of that presence, the more I draw close to everybody who Christ has given and Christ has entrusted to me. So I might pray for them, but after I say a prayer for them, I'm going to turn my mind back to that beautiful presence that he is disclosing to me. St. John the Cross says, Loving silence is the language that the Lord most loves to hear. And so when we put ourselves in a loving awareness of God's presence within us, God is doing something. We might feel like we're wasting our time, but God is doing something magnificent in us. And Elizabeth is extremely aware of this, and she is also extremely aware that this beautiful thing that Christ is doing in her is actually uniting her more closely to her friends and family, even though she's beside, behind the walls of a cloistered convent. You know, something really quite beautiful is occurring within the context of this letter as well. This whole understanding of hers, of, of heaven, and what her mission is, and what would ultimately become all of our missions. Am I correct? Yeah. Each one of us has a uh, a mission from God if we if if we choose to accept it, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> and you could even say uh, she doesn't speak about this because she didn't get to watch the television series. We you could even say that there's a we have a mission impossible impossible for us to do by ourselves, but with God everything is possible if we open ourselves to Him. This special purpose that He has for us in the world is going to be realized. This special kind of prayer that we just I just kind of reflected on is this is something that opens us to or makes us vulnerable to the mission that God has for us. Uh, that mission, though, is part of the very essence of what heaven is. And so this last thing that we just... I heard the church say, Veni sponsor Christi, come bride of Christ. She consecrated me, and now all is consummated. Rather, everything is beginning, for profession is only a dawn, and each day my life as a bride seems to me more beautiful, more luminous, more enveloped in peace and love. She sees her mission as that in terms of first and foremost who she is. And this is the beauty of our mission in the church. Whatever it is that God is giving you to do, it's not merely functional. It has to do 
with the very identity of who you are. It flows out of that identity. She sees her mission in terms of her identity as his bride. How do we see ourselves? Right now, she's speaking about it being more luminous, more deeper, deeper peace. But that's only because up until now, she's passed through this very difficult night. So I, I say this, in order to come to this mission, in order to come to the understanding of heaven that she's about to share with us, it takes a lot of suffering. And sometimes people are afraid of that suffering. And I, I guess the part of the witness of Elizabeth of the Trinity is, don't be afraid of the suffering. There is heaven in faith, a heaven that we can't see, that if we persevere in faith through difficult times, when God sees absence, if we continue to love, he is going to show us and it's going to make all the difference in our lives. This is what she's discovered. And so this line, during the night that preceded the great day, she might be talking about the night before she took her vows, but she also might be talking about the difficult purification she went through before she took her vows just as well. During the night that preceded the great day, while I was in choir awaiting the bridegroom, I understood that my heaven was beginning on earth. Heaven in faith. With suffering and immolation for him whom I love. I so wish to love him. To love him as my seraphic mother did, even to dying of it. We sing, O Caritas Victima, on her feast day, and that is my whole ambition, to be the prey of love. Heaven for her is first off about her identity. She knows who she is in the light of heaven. She is the bride of Christ. And now we get the first ray of light into what her mission. And her mission is to love. And so who is she? She is the bride of Christ. And what is her mission? Her mission is to love. We're going to explore this, keep on exploring this. Heaven then isn't a retirement home from a life's mission. Heaven isn't a retirement home from who you are. Heaven is the place where you most become who you are and where your mission is most fully realized. And what she's saying is that what is fully realized in the heaven of glory is already beginning for her right now and can be begin for us too. We can become most fully who we are and we can begin to live this life for the full already right now on this earth. It's possible for us if we let the Lord complete his work of purification and so she says, I so wish to love him, to love him as my seraphic mother did, even to dying of it. We sing, O victim of charity on her feast day. And that is my whole ambition, to be the prey of love, to be the prey of love. This will figure into her, her great prayer to the Trinity. It will be almost the last line of her prayer is she wants to be the prey of the Holy Trinity so that she can glorify all of his adorable perfections. So what is this connection of being a bride 
of loving all the way, giving yourself completely in love, and then being a prey or a victim of love. Therese of Lisieux will speak about victim. Elizabeth of the Trinity will also use the word victim or host. She very particularly likes the language of prey. I'm the prey of the Trinity. I'm the one whom the Trinity is going completely consume because I am the one who is completely surrendered to him so that he can carry me away, do whatever he wants with me. The connection is that act of surrender where we allow God to do whatever we want. This isn't like a sharp-willed resignation where I just grip white-knuckled as God does what he wants with me and somehow I'm going to endure and muddle through all this difficulty. She wants to do it in love. She wants to do it out of friendship for him. She wants to do it out of devotion for him. And so rather than white-knuckling through this total offering of herself, she's going to give it joyfully. She's going to give it with, uh, with a cheerfulness that belongs to him uh, because she trusts him. She's confident in him. She's confident that if she completely surrenders herself, she's not going to be destroyed. She's going to become most fully who she is. And how does she see herself? She sees herself as his prey. She sees herself as his beloved bride. Uh, Chris, this is a very important point. Each of us is beloved by God. And he wants to do something so beautiful with our lives. But that beautiful thing he wants to do, he can only do the extent that we're completely surrendered to him. To get us to that complete surrender, this kind of prayer that we talked about, this prayer where we're drawn into silence before his saving mystery is a very, very important movement of heart. This concludes part one of our conversation on this particular letter of St. Elizabeth of the Trinity. You've been listening to Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. We'd like to take this moment, too, to thank Miriam Gutierrez, who provided the voice for St. Elizabeth of the Trinity. To hear and or to download this conversation, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis.